0: Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, what I call the four I's, information, inputs, infrastructure, and insight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. The middle school years can be fraught for both kids and their parents. They can also be an opportunity. Today's guest, Phyllis Fagel, is a school counselor, a journalist, a Washington Post contributor and the author of an incredible book that came out in 2019 called Middle School Matters, whose goal is to help parents and teens navigate these turbulent times. Phyllis is also a mother of three and is working on her next book, Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. Phyllis, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Middle school is ripe with Emotions, transitions, physical, mental health challenges, changes, and opportunity. You know, we've all been through middle school, and I think many of us look back on it with sort of humor, maybe. And I think many of us look back on it and think, wow, that was a brutal time. I think what you're doing is so wonderful. You're looking at middle school and those tender years as not intrinsically problematic, but as an opportunity to really learn about who we are, and then you're helping parents navigate this very special time. And actually,
1: as I tell parents, if you frame middle school as this inherently negative, awful experience, they actually will have a worse experience. So there's really no percentage in framing it that way. But you're right. I see it as a time of opportunity Middle school historically has been known as the age of embarrassment, but I think really seeing it as an opportunity to get it in there and parent. And I think a lot of parents, they take that big step back because either they had a negative experience themselves, or they think this is just a time that you want to just kind of grin and bear it and hope it passes without too much pain. And if you do that, you miss out on this wonderful opportunity to support and coach your child.
0: It's so important. I mean, if I think about my adult patients, the groundwork of so many of our adult habits, behaviors, the way we relate to other people, the way we relate to food, other substances, work, the way we manage stress, those foundations were laid in childhood, but also in those transitional years. Transitions are when change can happen for the good or for the bad. So as you just said, it's an opportunity to really help our children as parents with their identity, with their behaviors. But I think it also, as you well know, adds a lot of pressure to the parenting job to think that, oh my God, we have this quote opportunity to make our kids into who we want, which actually is not what we're trying to do. Like, I don't think of children as a mound of clay that we're trying to mold into little mini-me's. We're trying to see them grow and blossom into who they are. But I think One of the challenges of parenting middle schoolers, as you well know, is that there is this pressure. Okay, there's an opportunity. Phyllis Fagel said so. Now what?
1: I think taking that pressure off of yourself first, because one of the best pieces of middle school is that the stakes are so low. So, yes, the stakes are high if you miss this opportunity to support them and coach them, but the stakes are low in that if they make lots of mistakes, then you have so much opportunity for them to regroup and learn. And in fact, that is when you want to be learning how you learn, how you study, how you ask for help, how you ask for emotional support, if that's the issue, how you choose a friend, all of those skills. This is when you're developing them. The way you learn how to do all of those things is through experience. You know, what's that expression? Where does good judgment come from? Experience. Where does experience come from? Bad judgment.
0: I think that's so important. And one of the things that we have learned over the last decade, and I think it was intuitive for a lot of people and parents, is that the key to success is failure. I think we know that intrinsically. Like I, for one, feel like I've learned the most about myself and my core values and have grown stronger through things I did wrong or messed up and had to pick myself up and kind of fail better. I think as parents, though, when the rubber meets the road, it's easier said than done to watch your kids struggle, fail, and have a hard time, particularly when it's emotional. How do you counsel parents, Phyllis, on those moments where your kid, for example, is really doing badly in algebra and you're tempted to like, hire a tutor or do their homework with them or for them, or they've had a bad breakup and they're in despair? I mean, how do you counsel parents on tolerating that distress in your child?
1: I'm going to use an analogy, and I think this is the first time I've used an analogy that pertains to pediatrics with a pediatrician, but the analogy is when your infant is getting a shot, when they have to get inoculated. It used to be that you would put the baby on the exam table, they would get the shot, and then they would return the baby to the parent to comfort and soothe them. And they don't do that anymore. Now they have the parent hold the infant the entire time that they're getting that shot. And when they measure the baby's physiological response, they are less distressed. Their heart rate doesn't go up as much. They have less release of cortisol, the stress hormone. The interesting thing to me is that the shot is the same. The objective experience of pain is the same, but they experience it differently. And I think that's the perfect analogy for parenting because you can't, shield them from all discomfort. In fact, you don't want to because then they miss the opportunity to learn, to have those painful experiences get encoded in long-term memory so they don't make the same mistake again. But you can be there to comfort them, to help them regroup, to figure out what they can do to make themselves feel better, what they need to do next to regroup socially, whatever that hit happens to be. Maybe it's asking for help so they don't fail the next math quiz.
0: Asking for help. Let's talk about that. So one of the things I try to instill in my kids is this concept that asking for help is a strength. It's not always about asking me. In fact, half the time, I don't have the answer at all. But asking for help, finding trusted guides, whether it's a teacher, a coach, some other sort of mentor, a sibling, how do you talk to parents about that, about the importance of asking for help? And what does it mean from a psychological standpoint to be able to ask for help?
1: First, I just want to tell you, I agree with you vehemently, like more than a hundred percent. In fact, in this next book I'm writing, which is about superpowers kids need to be resilient. I have an entire chapter called super vulnerability. That's about the ability to ask for help. And I think There is this misconception, adults have it too, that somehow conveying that you can do it all on your own, that you don't need any support, makes you look stronger, makes you look more competent. But actually the opposite is true. And even in the work world, do we want to work with people who are constantly trying to prove that they can do it on their own? Or do we want to work with collaborative people who are willing to ask for advice, to share expertise, So number one, it's not helpful to the child in the moment. Number two, it's not adaptive for them for the rest of their lives. And number three, when we do that, what we're communicating to them is that it's not okay to not be okay. And we want them to know it is okay to not be okay. In fact, that is your body, your mind telling you that you need to make a change. That's their spidey sense. And we want them to be able to heed it and to know who they need to go to, to get support in those moments.
0: I think it's such a great point, and I think one of the challenges in the modern world is that I think parents expect a lot of themselves. I think we as parents expect that we should know how to work, parent, caregive, put food on the table, feed our Instagram accounts if we're doing that and look like we have it all. When like a patient of mine said to me yesterday, oh my gosh, how are you doing this? You're writing a newsletter, you're doing a podcast, you're seeing patients. I'm like, I don't do it all. Like I have a lot of help and I outsource things. I am a big believer in like teamwork, asking for help, knowing my limits. And I talked to my kids about that as well. Like let's acknowledge that we all have emotional, social, physical limits to what we can and cannot do and that meeting our basic biological needs first is crucial. So sleeping, eating, moving our bodies, connecting with nature, and then finding your team of helpers. And that may be a professional person like you. It may be, again, a dog. It may be a trusted mentor. It may be a rabbi, but someone or a group of people to help support you and to help identify ideally in an objective way, what you're good at and what you're not good at, because we can't be good at all things all the time. I was talking recently to a
1: fairly young new mom who was just beating herself up because she had a child with learning issues and she has learning issues. And she felt like she was not equipped to support her child in this particular area where they were struggling. And I said, well, who can support your child in this area? You don't actually need to be able to support them in every last part of their lives. In fact, part of being a good parent is having that humility to say, this is not my strength. Someone else needs to help my child in this area. No one wants me teaching my own kids how to read a map, for instance. I have the worst sense of direction on the planet. I wouldn't dream of trying to teach my kids how to navigate anywhere, not out of a paper bag.
0: (laughs) You raise an excellent point. I think we as parents need to acknowledge that we have limitations, be okay not being okay ourselves, and then know when to hold them and know when to fold them. If I have a challenging problem with my patient or In my personal life, you know, I think about what can I do, but also how can I get the help I need? The practical example in my life is that I'm a generalist. I'm an internist. So if I have a patient who has, say, an anxiety problem, I help them with the insight, helping them understand that anxiety has taken on a life of its own, that it's part of the human condition to be worried. Obviously, that's how we survive, but the worry has taken on a life of its own. Let's identify the physical, emotional, behavioral fallout from that issue but I'm not going to act as their therapist. I'm not going to act as their friend. I'm going to help them get the support they need. And that's also supporting me. I'm not trying to be everything to this one patient. I know what I'm capable of, and I know when it's appropriate to refer and get support. And then that teamwork is so important. So I work with a lot of school counselors like you, Phyllis, for my adolescent patients. We'll tag team along with the therapist, you know, psychiatrist as needed, because I mean, it takes a village to raise a kid. I mean, one of the byproducts of thinking we can do it all as parents is that when things do go wrong, we're like, oh, crap, then it's all on me. And so if you can look at it as an asset to ask for help and seek trusted guides, it can be really relieving of our own anxiety as parents.
1: And you're modeling for your child that imperfection is okay that vulnerability, letting them see your vulnerability is really important because to a kid, they just think, oh, mom went from seventh grade to success overnight. There were no bumps on the way to that success or to wherever that place was for her. And so letting them know that life is far from a straight line is really protective because it will allow them to persist through frustration. It will help them forgive themselves, have some self-compassion so they don't get stuck. And so not only is it okay to be fallible, it's really important for your child to know that you're imperfect as well.
0: I was discussing with this patient about her recreational drug use in adolescence, that acknowledging that to her daughter may not actually be a bad thing. It might be a good thing that acknowledging that you have some similar behavioral patterns with your child can be really empowering for them and isn't necessarily driving their own problem.
1: I agree with that. As long as the child has the maturity and the ability to contextualize that information, it can actually be really helpful for them to be able to talk honestly with you and not feel judged because you've been willing to be vulnerable with them.
0: Parents, and I put myself in this category as well, are sometimes worried that if they acknowledge that they themselves had middle school or adolescent challenges, that that's going to somehow open the door for their kid to have challenges and then they're going to fall apart. When actually, I think acknowledging that we had struggles is just basically saying that I'm human, too. Agree. What do you think the role of social media is right now with the middle schoolers and with parents? I mean, I have lots to say about social media and the pressures, and I think there's abundant data to show that, first of all, kids on average spend, I think, seven or eight hours on social media every day in the U.S., and that the algorithms are designed to create addiction to these platforms. For adolescent girls in particular, the images of bikini clad bodies and the diet culture stuff is just noxious. At the same time, it's how kids connect to one another. I mean, if you're not on social media, if you don't have a phone, I think it's hard to be integrated to the social scene. What is your thought about social media and the impact on middle schoolers?
1: So with middle schoolers in particular, they're so interested in equity and justice and fairness. And so I try to use that to help them understand they're being manipulated that they're being used by all of these companies that are just bombarding them with these unrealistic images that they will readily acknowledge, make them feel terrible about themselves. By the way, the research shows that boys are impacted just as much as girls, even with body image. Mm. They also are seeing these ads for, you know, you can have abs in five minutes if you just use this roller. And they are also getting all of these unrealistic expectations about what it means to be, you know, a real man or to have that image that you want to project. They're really subjected to the same pressures as girls now, and they're spending a lot of time online too. So number one is helping them see that they're being manipulated, to just activate that desire to push back and to activate that desire to protect other people from feeling that way. So it's not just for themselves, it's really about influencing the culture, changing the way everybody is feeling about themselves, that instinct to help. That's one of my favorite things about middle schoolers is how compassionate they are. They're still developing that empathy, but you can tap into that and activate it. It's almost a superpower in and of itself. And then I like to have them think critically about whether or not it's working for them and how they're using it. Because in middle school, you can't tell a kid what they can do or can't do and expect them to comply 100% of the time. They might tell you they are, they might hide their app in their calculator, meanwhile, or they might take something off their phone and put it back on when they go back to school. But there is so much you can't control. And so the biggest gift we can give them is to teach them those critical thinking skills and the ability to make choices for themselves about what's working for them. So I'll have kids go through that exercise. When do you feel good? You can even use an app to keep track of your moods. A lot of technology can be used to help kids get a sense of what is and isn't working for them. And maybe they'll notice from that app that every time they spend a couple hours on Instagram, they end up feeling really lousy, helping them develop that awareness. But on the other hand, maybe they feel really great if they're online because they're connecting with peers who also maybe identify as LGBTQ plus. And so they found a common community or they're advocating for a cause they care about. There are ways that kids use it that are really pro-social and actually quite helpful to them on an individual level, but helping them really be thoughtful about how they use it. And then the third piece of this, and this is often more typical with boys, especially younger middle school boys, but also with kids of any gender who struggle socially a lot of them, particularly post-pandemic or wherever we are in this pandemic, have gotten so used to using technology to socialize Mm. that it's now a crutch. And so if you're online gaming, you're getting that sense of connection you want without the burden to be the host and entertain somebody, without the burden to carry on a long conversation. But what you're not getting is the practice you need in those areas to develop the social skills and the confidence to not feel like you need to be online to interact with friends. So in those situations, If that's how they're using it, to really be looking as a parent at how can I meet that need without them getting online? And so maybe they need a much more structured social hangout. Maybe they go bowling or you help them decorate cupcakes or you watch a movie so that they have that incremental practice without feeling overwhelmed.
0: I really love the practical guidance there. And I love that framing that you just gave because it's very easy to tell your kids get off your phone, stop being on your phone, go outside, run around you've been on your screens too much, to nag and guilt kids for being on their phones. Kids are smart and they want to know the why. Not to mention, I love that framing of the social justice, like telling them, look, these technology companies are manipulating you. You can be in the driver's seat by taking back control. If adolescents love nothing else, it's taking control and being in charge. So that's a really great way of framing it. Let me just make sure I'm getting this right reframing the conversation about screens and social media to your kids by saying, recognize that these companies are taking advantage of you and you're playing into their hands accidentally. They're using you. They're using you. They're using you for their data and for their algorithms. And so just like the cigarette companies were manipulating people and saying, you know, it's healthy to smoke. I think it's a really great way of putting kids in the driver's seat of their habits. Whether it works is a different story, but at least they have that framing instead of, you know, as parents, you and I both know how easy it is to just like nag and tell them what to do. But, you know, when they understand the why, it's much easier.
1: I will add to that. One of the other problems kids have with social media because they don't have that face to face contact is that the cover of anonymity really makes them make choices that If they were looking someone face to face, they wouldn't make. So one of the other things I like to have kids do to help them develop that kind of metacognition about how they're using social media or texting, it doesn't necessarily have to even be an app, is to go through their feed, whether it's Snaps or Instagram or their texts and find that one post that seems aberrant. It stands out as different from the rest. And maybe it's because it is a post where you over-disclosed and then you ended up feeling overexposed, or you were trying to be funny and it landed mean, or you ended up telling a secret that you had promised not to share, or you said something that you regret in any way, whatever it might be. And then what I tell them to do is to try to put themselves back in that moment. What was happening with you emotionally? What was happening externally? Was it late at night? You were really tired. You had just gotten in a fight with your brother and it was easy to trigger you. Was it that you were trying to impress a particular group of kids that you want to hang out with? Is it that you were just trying too hard and you needed to just take a deep breath and relax before responding? But acquiring the ability to police themselves a little bit to maybe hopefully lessen some of the mistakes that they're making online.
0: I think that we could all do that. I'd like to go through my Twitter feed and look at some of the things that just didn't go well and think, what was I thinking at that moment? (laughs) And I think we all should do that. I mean, I think what you're describing, Phyllis, is that gap between a feeling and then a behavior. And I think for middle schoolers, sometimes that gap, whether it's a time gap or an emotional fuse, is really, really short And there's impulsivity. I think the algorithms of social media feed that impulsivity. One of the things I love about dialectical behavioral therapy is this concept of distress tolerance, emotional regulation, and don't just do something, sit there. So like feeling a feeling in your body of, oh my God, that person just tweeted something so outrageous and so offensive to me that I need to quote tweet it and get the last word. When actually... You want to kind of acknowledge how you're feeling, acknowledge that maybe you haven't slept enough, you had too much coffee, you're overstimulated, and then give yourself a minute to process the feelings before you hit send on that angry tweet. Or if you're on Instagram, that inappropriate message that revealed the secret of a friend to impress someone else. I think it's so important that not just for children is what I'm saying is for adults too to take a minute and think about how we feel before we behave on social media, because first of all, it's permanent. And second of all, I think there's an impulsivity that we all have online that can get the best of us.
1: With kids in particular, I will tell them to sit on their hands and count to 20. And if they still wanna post it, fine. But in that 20 seconds, I want them to answer at least a couple of questions. Could this come back to haunt me? Could this hurt anyone else? Am I likely to regret it? When I wake up tomorrow morning, taking that few seconds to ask yourself those questions can often keep you or prevent you from making a decision that you'll be unhappy with
0: later. That's a really good exercise. And again, I think something we could all do, like take a moment in the next day or so to look at something we posted and regretted and think about the why and then be more intentional about what we say. I think you're so right that the anonymity and the fact that you're sitting at your desk gives people this sense of power that is false. I'd like to tweet like my kids are watching or posts like my great grandmother is seeing everything I post, which I don't always adhere to, but I think your point is well taken. Just emotional regulation and thinking about the why. Let's talk about the pandemic and how it affected teens and adolescents. As you well know, we're in a mental health crisis that was ongoing and predates COVID-19. How do you see the pandemic having affected middle schoolers and parents of middle schoolers? And I say this as
1: the parent of a child who went through much of middle school during the pandemic, a boy who is 11 when the pandemic hit. And I have said many, many times in the last few years that I think the pandemic was hardest on middle schoolers. I have older teens as well. And what I found is that they did much better than he did for a number of reasons. Number one, their friendships were much more stable by high school. You have a really good sense of what your support system looks like and who you can lean on. Number two, they had far more depth to their social interactions. Their social skills were stronger. They could carry on a face-to-face conversation or they could carry on a conversation on the phone for a long period of time. An 11-year-old boy doesn't necessarily have that skill set yet. That takes some time to develop, particularly with boys. And they could drive they could actually get up, leave. My youngest was trapped at home at the time that it is literally a developmental imperative for them to separate from family and be with friends. He had to interact online at an age when kids have very few social skills to begin with, and they're still figuring out who their friends are. For him, I found that it was a much lonelier experience than it was for my older kids.
0: I have seen that in my own kids. I've seen that in my patients. I've seen it in the parents of teens, that middle school, when that development is arrested, is so noxious. How are you advising parents as we head into the next school year with COVID being woven into the fabric of our lives, not that we want it to be, but that that's the reality?
1: I'm a huge believer that success breeds success and that you want to be setting your child up for success. And by success, I don't mean getting all A's and taking advanced classes. What I mean is they feel comfortable in their skin. They feel like you honor them for who they are, that they are good enough. That is such a developmental imperative as well to figure out if you're good enough, that you really see them and you see their strengths. There's research showing that it takes five strengths to make up for one negative comment. So really being mindful of the messages you're transmitting. I often tell parents of middle schoolers, if you said it once, they heard you. You don't need to repeat that nag. You don't need to repeat that criticism. They heard you. And in fact, it's probably encoded for the rest of their lives at that age. It just, they're so exquisitely sensitive. So looking for opportunities to help them shine, communicating with the school to make sure that the school is setting them up for success. If they have fine motor issues, they probably shouldn't be making a diorama to demonstrate their learning. You want to be making sure that you're honest and authentic with the school because number one, they don't expect perfect children anyway. And number two, they can't support your child if they don't know what the needs might be. So if they are a lot for any one target friend, that's something that a teacher can keep in mind when they're making group project arrangements. So just having that open dialogue, setting them up for success, making them feel competent, doing whatever you can to let them know that mistakes are okay, will help them be okay. And then for the pandemic piece, I would add that kids are presenting a little bit younger, a little bit needier. They need more nurturance than they did prior to the pandemic. I shared a story in my last Washington Post article from a principal in Virginia, Fairfax County. She had an end of year dance and they always offer alternative activities. You can do something on the blacktop or play games during this end of year event or during the dance. And about 50 middle school boys, eighth graders, specifically eighth grade boys, started to organize and play a huge game of duck, duck, goose, which had never happened before. And for her, it was that reminder that for the kids who are pandemic products, there's so much elementary school left in them. So letting that part of them come to the surface, not pushing them too hard, meeting them where they are, all of that is going to allow them to thrive.
0: I think there's a lot of parental anxiety as we head into the new school year. Naturally, parents are worried about their kids getting COVID, I think, but they're also worried about, is my kid ready socially, emotionally, physically? You know, a lot of kids, as you well know, suffered from anxiety themselves during the pandemic, had depression, disordered eating, you know, all on a continuum. You know, change is hard for all of us. How much do you find reassurance a useful tool for parents? reassuring parents is not a
1: particularly useful tool because you can't prove to them that everything will be okay. I could say, trust me, everything is going to be fine. They're in the range of normal. I have a very large sample size. This is a typical bump in the road for a 13 year old. But as that parent, you're bringing all of your own anxiety to the table, all of your hopes and dreams for your child. So what I found is most helpful for parents is to have concrete ways to support their kid. For instance, if you are worried that your child is, prone to anxiety and that's something you know about them, try to get a sense of what it is they're worried about and try to extinguish those anxieties. If they don't know who they're going to eat lunch with on the first day and that's causing them distress, help them be proactive. Is there someone who you know has a similar schedule who you could meet outside the cafeteria to have lunch with? Being very concrete about what you can do to support them. If they tell you they're stressed about something, ask them to rank it on a scale of one to five. The number is not important, but what you're trying to figure out is how stressed they are, whether they have the reserves, because everybody's reserves are down to deal with that stress, or if they might need some extra support. Sometimes kids just want to unload. And then remember, not all stress is bad. Stress is just a reminder that you're a human, and it's only a problem if you don't have the coping strategies to manage it as long as they are feeling like they can manage the stress, the stress itself is not problematic.
0: It's such a good point. And our mutual friend, Lisa Demore, talks a lot about the goal of parenting isn't to stomp out every trace of stress in our kids or in ourselves, because anxiety is part of the human condition. It's how we survive. It's why we don't walk into traffic. It's why we study for the test. It's when anxiety takes on a life of its own and causes physical, emotional, behavioral problems, we need to address it. So I think what you're saying is, we need to tolerate our children having some anxiety because that's part of the human condition. We also need to tolerate the anxiety of watching our kids be anxious or in distress. I mean, I think we should teach our kids reading, writing, arithmetic, as they say. We also should be teaching our kids, particularly in this very complicated world, distress tolerance. Distress is part of the human condition. Tolerating it is really an essential part of being human.
1: And for the kids themselves, number one, reassuring them that stress is normal, is helpful. And number two, reminding them that they're not at the mercy of their emotions. So yes, they're distressed, but that doesn't mean they're helpless or powerless. We can give them permission to take a break from worrying, for instance. Sometimes I'll tell parents, write down the worry on an index card and literally put it on ice, stick it in the freezer or use a worry box or a worry monster, which you can get on Amazon. They have a zippered mouth and I love them. Tell me about the worry monster. Monster. This is a pandemic story. During the pandemic, I ordered a worry monster from Amazon and it's a stuffed animal that, you know, has three eyes, looks like a monster. They're often bright colors. It has a zippered mouth and I ordered it for my younger elementary school students. I'm in a K-8 and thought for sure the third graders, fourth graders, second graders would love to write down their worries and put it in the worry monster's mouth so that they could be able to return to studying or return to being in the classroom and not be distracted by whatever that worry happens to be. And young kids worry too. I'll just put that out there quite a bit. But what happened, and this is so interesting to me, and it's sort of analogous to that Duck, Duck, Goose story. When I got my worry monster, it was the middle schoolers who really took to it and would stop by just to write down a worry and feed it to the worry monster. And I have a couple of theories about that. One is that even in less turbulent times, middle schoolers can be 13 going on three or 13 going on 30, depending on the day. And the other piece of it is that nurturance that they're looking for. There is something comforting about a stuffed animal, kind of reminiscent of childhood, that gives them a lot of reassurance to put the worry in a worry monster's mouth as opposed to just a plain old shoebox worry box or sticking it in the freezer.
0: Wonderful. I love it. I want to order a whole bunch and hand them out to everyone I know and have one next to me on my own bed. (laughs) It sounds awesome because the worst thing is that free floating anxiety is so challenging and to have a place to put it physically, whether it's a journal or a worry monster is healthy.
1: Yes. And giving them those Concrete tools in the moment when they have that discomfort, things they can do with it. First, just explaining that no feeling lasts forever or at the same intensity. That is not intuitive. Giving them a label for the feeling. I will use a feelings wheel to help them really drill down because if you don't know what's bothering you, you don't know what the right solution is. If you are sad and you're sad because you're worried that you're going to do poorly on a test, well, then the solution might be to get some extra academic support. But if you're sad because you're lonely, then the solution is going to be to call a friend. So really helping them build that vocabulary, feeling like they're not passive victims of fate, then also giving them some coping strategies that they can use. So during the pandemic, one of the things that I found is that mindfulness was less effective than it was prior to the pandemic because kids were having trouble sitting with the distress, sitting with that uncomfortable thought. And so rather than calming their mind In order to calm their body, I had to work backwards. I had to help them calm their body or activate the parasympathetic nervous system in order to calm their thoughts. And so I would give them strategies like pressing the acupressure point under their thumb or giving themselves a tight self-hug or tensing and releasing their shoulders. And what I found is that number one, it was helpful because those strategies are evidence-backed and they work, but also because these kids didn't feel like they had no control they weren't at the mercy of their feelings there was something they knew they could do that was concrete to help themselves while they were sitting in class and it was dignified it wouldn't call attention to themselves it not only dealt with the underlying reason for the anxiety it dealt with
0: the anxiety they had about being anxious and not being able to manage it themselves the practical tools are so important i remember adolescence myself it, it just i remember and i see it in my own kids that sort of flooding of emotion and you can think in the moment like this is forever this is it and catastrophize. I also love what you talked about the feelings wheel. I have this poster in my office. It's called the periodic table of emotions because, you know, we're trained or we are socialized to think that there are three emotions like the primary colors, happy, sad, mad, when actually anger is sometimes a proxy for vulnerability or fear or or loneliness. And so, you know, my kids teased me about it or did tease me about it. And now they're obsessed with it. <laughs> they're like, I oh love my. that too. <laughs> it's really cool. You can buy them online really easily. And it's right in my office for patients. But I'll find myself gazing at it. I'm like, God, I don't think I'm actually sad. I think I'm feeling afraid. It's just helpful because I think we have a whole rainbow of emotions under the hood that when identified can then help us make the appropriate changes or cope in a more productive way.
1: Yes. And also the peaks can't exist without the valleys. If you haven't experienced despair, you're not going to experience joy in quite the same way. So it's really protective to have a broad array of feelings because it helps you appreciate the good moments even more.
0: I hope that's true because I'm witnessing a broad array of feelings in my own house. (laughs) I witness them in myself. Like, I'm a feeler of feelings, and it can bite me in the ass sometimes. But, you know, I'm a grown-up now, and so I can identify the feelings, identify which feelings lead to which behaviors, and try to be more of a grown-up. But I think all of us have that inner child, that inner desire to self-soothe in sometimes unhealthy ways, the inner drive to be accepted and be liked and to belong. I mean, I think those are human desires. I think it's just heightened in adolescence. And if you can learn from someone like you, Phyllis, or from your books, or from just paying attention to your child, how to help them identify the feelings and then identify the behaviors and be more in control of their emotional health, I mean, it would have saved me a lot of therapy. I think it also is a way to nurture a relationship between parent and child if you have that common vocabulary.
1: I actually often tell parents, especially the ones who are really anxious about the middle school phase, that the experiences that your children are having in middle school aren't inherently worse than experiences you have at other points in your life. It's that you're experiencing them at a time when your emotions are all a 10 on the scale of one to 10 and you're going through puberty and there are all of these changes and you have no life experience and no perspective. So it feels pretty rotten at that time. But it's not that they're inherently worse. And recognizing that sometimes can ease parents' anxiety about what their kids are walking into. It's not that they're going to be deluged with these horrible, scarring experiences. It's that they need those tools to be able to handle them in the absence of that life experience and perspective.
0: That's a really great point and reassuring without you overtly saying it's going to be okay. (laughs) <laughs> Tell me about your middle school experience, Phyllis. I mean, you were a middle schooler once. What issues, if any, do you struggle with? And how do you bring that life experience to your work? Also as a parent, but I'm interested in your own middle school adolescence.
1: I really do try to go back to that point in my life for my writing and to remember what it was like at the time. I think I was one of those 13 year olds going on 10. I was on the younger side emotionally. And so I think in some ways I might've experienced a lot of middle school emotions later when I was more 15, 16. One of the stories I tell my kids and I use it to really highlight that people don't necessarily intend to wound. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for middle schoolers is assuming positive intent is a story of the first boy who ever asked me to a dance or on a date. And I was really nervous. Again, remember I was 13 going on 10 in my head. And so he called me up and he asked me to this dance. And I said, yes, kind of reflexively. I was not, I was a nice kid, Uh, but I then started to panic. I was not ready to go on a date. I didn't want to have any kind of pressure in that part of my life yet. I just wasn't there. And I, was ruminating and worrying about it and as the dance got closer I got more and more panicked about it and the day of the dance the boy and his mother called me to tell me what time they were going to come get me uh, because he was also 13 and I said that's okay I'll just meet you there. And it came from that place of panic and fear and stress. But when I told my kids this story, they were in middle school at the time. My older two, they were horrified. They were like, mom, you were so mean. Intellectually, they understood that it had nothing whatsoever to do with this other kid. If he's listening, I'm really sorry. (laughs) (laughs) probably came off as super mean, but that's something that I think is a good reminder for middle schoolers that everybody is new to all of the experiences they're having and they're not always handling them in the best way. But 99% of the time it has way more to do with something going on in their own life than it does have to do with anything about there being something wrong with you.
0: I feel like there could be a whole book called. It's actually not about you. Oh, I love that title. It's actually not about you. I mean, there's a lot that's about us, But a lot of people's behaviors have nothing to do with the recipient of the behavior. And so I try to tell my kids the same thing. I try to tell myself the the same thing. Like when someone is like calling me names on Twitter, I'm like, you know, this isn't actually about me. It's about their emotional distress and their challenges. control. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and you know, you also don't want to be in denial about the fact that you are a participant in some relationship. But I think that's a it's a really good lesson, and that's what age and wisdom over time will bring you. But I think that's such a good example, Phyllis, of that boy might have thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm unlovable. I'm, uh, I know, I'm, I'm, so really guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not fit to date." When actually, it had nothing to do with him. Nothing at all. Zero. It had
1: zero to do with them. And in fact, when I work with middle schoolers now and they tell me that somebody slighted them, I ask them to come up with three alternative, more benign reasons that the person might've made that choice. And I always preface it by saying, I don't expect you to believe the alternative reasons you come up with. I don't need you to believe them. I just want you to get in the practice of challenging that immediate desire to catastrophize, to assume the worst. That's that cognitive flexibility that will be so protective in so many other situations in their life. And in fact, recently I did that with a kid and he was upset because somebody had been basically teasing him relentlessly about something he already felt sensitive about. And I asked him to come up with three reasons and he had to think about it for a little while. And then he said, well, I've noticed he does it to everybody else too. Maybe he doesn't know how much it bothers me. And by the time he was done going through this exercise, he actually had some compassion for the other kid. He ended by saying, you know, now that I've said that, gosh, he better be careful because he's going to end up with no friends if he keeps this up. So just walking them through that exercise, whether or not they believe it in the moment Can just loosen their thinking enough for them not to just take it on as
0: self-critical. It's great. It's that flexibility of thinking, and then that's like the varsity headspace is that compassion going from anger, like this girl didn't show up for the date, not to make you feel worse, Phyllis, (laughs) you know, or or disappointment or shame, to like, hey, wait a minute, let me think about how this story actually might have gone in my head and how the the reality was, and then like, oh, I feel actually sad for her that she felt so anxious when I'm like a nice guy. Anyway, I hope this person is living a very productive, happy life. I think they are. (laughs) (laughs) We all have have those stories, right? I mean, I quote, dated a middle school boy. Our relationship was founded on the fact that we had the same birthday. So we had to date. Of course. And then I went off to sleepaway camp in West Virginia and I decided, you know, this was sort of a transactional relationship. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, we had nothing, nothing to talk about other than the fact that we had the same birthday. So I wrote him a postcard from camp saying, you know, I think this is over. Because I was just anxious about what did this mean? I was like you, uh, you know, yeah, you 13 didn't know how going to on that. 10. If he's listening, I hope I didn't break your heart. <laughs> I think you're a great person.
1: And happy birthday.
0: <laughs> But uh, you had to
1: try. You had to at least try. The but same birthday. it was really
0: about me being like, what the hell am I doing in a relationship? I'm like a late bloomer. And I don't know what this is about. So I think it's really important to make sure our kids know it's not always about you. There's so many inputs coming at you right with social media. There's so many ways to feel judged and feel hurt. I think you're right. The first thing is that assume Good intentions. Like adults do this too. We assume that someone's out to hurt you when actually that's not always their intent. And then rewrite that narrative in your mind. It may not be what you think.
1: Yes. And also, you'll feel better. Part of it is that compassion for the other person, recognizing they have that backstory. And part of it is just recognizing that if you can learn and develop that skill, you're going to suffer less. You're going to have an easier time navigating the inevitable ups and downs because nobody comes out totally unscathed. (laughs) by the adolescent experience, but everybody is dealing with those ups and downs. There is nothing unique about you, your child. That is one thing I can say as a school counselor with a sample size, that being popular doesn't buffer you from having those ups and downs. Being the smartest kid or the most athletic kid, having the nicest parents, none of that buffers you from the normal, typical ups and downs of middle school. Does it protect you to have great parents? Sure. It's a protective factor, but you're still going to have to coach them, reassure them, help them through those years. They're just difficult for everybody.
0: And just to finish up, I think what's also important is that compassion for ourselves as parents, we're doing the best we can and that our kids need to have compassion for themselves, just allowing ourselves a little grace and latitude as we adjust To new phases in our kids' lives, in our own lives as parents, that compassion can be so calming. I mean, chemically relaxing. We could do better on that front. At least I could.
1: I think we all could be a little less hard on ourselves for sure.
0: Tell me about this new book that's coming out. I know you're in the throes of finalizing it. Tell me what it's going to be about. And I hope to have you back on the podcast when it comes out to talk more about it. I would
1: love to come back. I really enjoyed talking to you today. So the new book is Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. And it's about rather than seeing middle school as this dreaded phase to just get through, it's about actually leveraging the challenges that kids experience. And some challenges are bigger than others, but whatever gets thrown at them, whether it's just having more classes and transitioning to a new building, losing a friend, only a third of friendships last from sixth to eighth grade in middle school. So they all are going to be experiencing a lot of shifting social relationships. No matter what happens in those years, it's about taking those experiences and actually leveraging them to help them come out stronger on the other side. So the book goes through the 12 superpowers that will help kids. I outline a number of very specific scenarios that are pretty common in middle school.
0: I love it. And to the extent that as adults, we all carry with us our inner child, our inner middle schooler, I'm sure it'll be applicable to adults as well as we navigate our own turbulent times.
1: Definitely. I was talking to my 21-year-old today and he's going through interviews and one hadn't gone the way he had wanted it to go. And I shared with him something that's in my super optimism (laughs) chapter. And I realized that I had written this guide to living a meaningful, substantive life and that it contained all of the advice. If I had my children's ear for several hours, what I would want to share with them. I just grounded in the middle school phase, but middle schoolers are people. We're just bigger middle schoolers.
0: We are bigger middle schoolers. Amen. (laughs) I love it. Phyllis, thank you so much for joining me today. I wish you all the best. And I'm excited for people to listen today and take away a little bit of calm, self-compassion, tolerance for distress, and optimism about the next chapters, whatever they may bring. Thank you so much for having me on today. Thanks, Phyllis. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.